Well, if you want to stir up controversy and talk about hot topics, uh, especially as it would relate to Christianity, all you need to do is start talking about Christ, the people of Christ, as they interface and relate to culture. And all of a sudden, it's on. Uh, controversy is brewing. It's a hot topic. Questions come up like, should the church fight against homosexuality? Hot topic, about the hottest topic going right now. That's a question relating to Christ and culture. Uh, should Christians be uh, politically active? That's another hot topic, especially around election times. Uh, can Christians only vote for Christians? Or could they vote for, as we saw in the last election, is it okay for a Christian to vote for a Mormon? Hot topic. Topics are brewing. Should the church be politically active? Should they not be politically active? Christ and culture issues. And there's a whole bunch of them that are controversial, but some of them aren't so controversial. Because, if you stop and think about it, just about everything we do relates, if we're Christians... Everything we do relates to Christ and culture because we're inescapably linked to culture. You have church culture that you're a part of. You have your neighborhood culture you're a part of. You have your work culture you're a part of. You have your friends culture you're a part of. You have athletic culture you're a part of, perhaps. Uh, you're, if you're a person who lives in Omaha, you've got the Omaha culture. If you're on the east side, you've got that. West side, north, south, you've got that culture. Subcultures are around. Uh, United States, we've got our country's culture. Culture is inescapable. And this affects everything we think about, everything that we do, whether it be school choices, um, career choices, marriage, singleness, family discussions, sports discussions, I mean, every, everything. It, it, it's, it's all related. And here we are gathered today as Christians wanting to honor Christ with our lives, right? If you're here today and you're a Christian, that's like basic 101, uh, I want to honor Christ. Well, it makes it relevant to you to, to deal with this issue of Christ and culture because you're in a culture and you're a Christian, so how do I do it? Whether it's the controversial stuff or the not-so-controversial stuff. If, you, if you're in a family, you're in a family culture, right? Very relevant, very important issue for us. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to do our conference this year. And we're going to call it Christ and Culture. So on Saturday the 28th, here's the little promo um, that you were told about earlier. On the 28th, we've asked David Van Drunen, who's written a whole bunch on the topic and whose views seem to be... Uh, good ones that are biblical and uh, uh, drawn toward. We've asked him to come and we're going to spend a Saturday talking about Christ and culture and thinking through these issues that are relevant to all of us uh, and perhaps he'll even talk about those issues on Sunday as well. What I want to do this morning is, is introduce some of the big ideas um, to kind of whet your appetite, to kind of prime the pump, to kind of get things rolling. And so this morning what we'll do, and we'll probably do this next week as well, I, I learned that first hour because I have too much information, um, one guy just said, you just talk too much, and I wanted to object, and I said, you're right. So anyway, um, I admit it, I'll follow my, I just talked too much first hour. So seven guiding principles, if you will, is what we're going to begin looking at. We'll look at the first four this morning um, to help us deal with how do I honor Jesus in the world I live in in my culture, in my subculture, in whatever culture I'm in. How do I honor Jesus? And what we're trying to do is, is to look at different biblical passages, trying to um, have some, some moorings, have, have some pillars, some guideposts, whatever you would like, uh, to help us build what ends up being a big perspective, uh, a paradigm, if you will, so that we can practically make our decisions and, and honor Christ um, with, with the way we do these things. Okay? It's the plan, so that's what we're going to do. Um, before I get to number one, see, I talk too much. Um, there's something in me that just wants to say, well, be biblical. Right? That's a good place to start. Let's just be biblical in our worldview and our decision making. Um, and the problem with that is, there are lots of Christians who even agree on the gospel who have different perspectives on Christ and culture issues. And um, 
That doesn't mean it's a riddle book and we can't understand. But there, this is a debated issue amongst Christians. And so, again, uh, I think it's going to take some time. Don't, don't just listen to one of these guideposts or one of these principles and say, that's all I'm going to listen to today. We're, we're going to have to go, okay, guidepost number one, guidepost number two, and they complement each other. And we're going to fill in the bigger picture because really what we want are not just rote answers on how to deal with every situation in life. What I want as a pastor, what I want as an individual Christian is, is a bigger perspective to help me think through the issues. I want to bounce that ball to you and have you have, a, again, a paradigm, if you will, so you can think through the issues. That just takes a little bit of work. So we're going we're gonna to work a little bit today. It uh, won't be exhaustive, um, but at least gets us started. A lot of us come from this extreme, maybe let's call it fundamentalism, though nobody wants to admit to being a fundamentalist. Um, but a lot of us come from that kind of extreme where we think Christ and culture is simple. Hide. Okay? Holy huddle uh, perspective. Uh, our life verse, as if it's the only verse in the Bible, is bad company corrupts good morals. And so let's have church seven days a week and let's lock our doors and only use our garage door openers and let's hunker down, bunker down, whatever you want to say. And we're just going to be here because the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we'll just hang on till Jesus comes. There's something about that I like. <laughs> but anyway, um, some of us come from that kind of background. Okay, And we have our, our, our favorite verses. We want to pay attention to some of those verses, but we have to realize there are also other verses. Let's go to the other extreme, and none of us are extreme, so none of us fit these, right? Um, we're all somewhere in the biblical middle. Anyway, so other extreme is going to be maybe the kind of the extreme transformationalist. We're going to transform culture. We're going to change culture, and we're going to change culture so much that every, all cultures are going to be Christian cultures. And so uh, on the extreme side of it is we're going to so impose and so promote biblical Christian values and God's word, the Bible. We're going to so do that all uh, in every realm of life and in every realm of government and around the whole world. And eventually everybody's going to be a Christian because we're going to have everything under control of the authority of God's word. And by the way, that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. But some of us are drawn toward that, have that having that happen even before he does. Okay, so transform, 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 and, and that's where we're headed. And then there's everything in between. And more than likely you fit somewhere in between, but you have a tendency here or a tendency here. With that in mind, let's do our best prayerfully, thoughtfully, realizing there's tensions and places for prayer and consideration and thoughtfulness. Let's do our best to, to have some guiding principles to help us through this, uh, to honor Jesus, because that's what we're trying to do. So number one. Number one, principle number one, uh, guidepost number one, whichever you'd prefer, would be imitate exiled Israel. Imitate exiled Israel. First principle for honoring Christ. First Peter chapter 2 is the passage we read for Scripture reading. If you'd go back there, there it's a great passage to help us. Okay? It's a great passage to help us. There's something that we, we as Christians, 1 Peter's written to Christians like us. Okay, it's not written to Israel. It's not written to a nation. It's written to Christians who are having a hard time in their, their, their culture and cultures, uh, facing persecution, facing tension. They don't feel like they belong. Help us out here, Peter. Uh, put this in simple terms that we can understand. Well, he's writing to people who are, who are Old Testament literate, um, and some of us in this room aren't, some of us aren't. That's okay. I can bring you up to speed, okay? He's going to borrow, Peter's going to talk to Christians like us, but he's going to borrow from the Old Testament world, from Old Testament history, and he's specifically going to borrow uh, from, from that time when Israel, national Israel, is away from her nation, not in Jerusalem. They're exiled away from the, the capital city. They're exiled. They're, they're, they're enslaved. They're... they're, 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 they're they're aliens. They don't belong. They belong in Israel and they're not in Israel. And Peter's going to draw upon that and say, Hey, Christian, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, there's something there for you to learn. There's something there for you to learn on how to deal with feeling like you don't belong. A great example would be Israel. Let's go ahead and look. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, once again, But you are a chosen race. Well, he's borrowing Old Testament verbiage there. Uh, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation? Just stop there for a second. And, and we, we have to know, if we have our brains turned on and are thinking big picture, he doesn't mean that literally. Because Christianity is not tied to a race. We're going to see that this morning in just a little while. Christianity is not tied to a nation. We're going to see that in just a little while. Oh, the, the priesthood thing too, that, that's Old Testament Israel stuff. But see what he's doing is he's using those images that are vivid, clear images if you're thinking Old Testament-ish that remind you that they, the Israelites, the people of God, suffered, didn't belong, had great hardship. He's going to get at the point we've got to learn from them. As Christians, we have to learn from them. He, he, if you drop down to verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Some of your translations say strangers and aliens. And that's how I learned it, so that's what sticks in my mind. The Israelites, when they were exiled, were strangers and aliens. Mr. and Mrs. Christian, uh, whether it's 1st century or 21st century, you feel like you don't belong. You're having a tough go of it. I don't really feel like I fit in here. I'm a human being, I'm part of the human race, so I feel like I do belong, and at the same time, I have a different king, ultimately, whose name is Jesus, so I feel like I don't belong. That's right, you're a stranger, you're an alien, and maybe we can learn a thing or two from the way Israel dealt with that, okay? Maybe you could even go back to chapter 1 and see, this is how he opened up the letter, borrowing some images, this is chapter 1, you can... Just turn back there or scroll there, whichever kind of device you happen to be using. Um, And it says in chapter 1, verse 1, elect exiles of the dispersion. Chapter 1, verse 2, exile. Chapter 1, verse 3, sojourners and exiles. There's something about us as Christians who are struggling with what our place is in this world There's something about Old Testament Israel that can give us some help. You feel weird? Well, you are weird. (laughs) Because there's a sense in which you don't belong. Because your ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus, and you're trusting in Him, and that might mean a rub for the world around you. Now, I'm not saying we are Israel. In fact, I'm going to go out of my way to say we're not a nation in just a little while. But there's no way around 1 Peter talking to Christians like us saying you should learn some things from those guys. Uh, it didn't all go well for them. Um, they, they wanted to be in Jerusalem. Okay, Revelation chapter 21 tells us that there's going to be a heavenly Jerusalem, right? We, we, we're waiting for the heavenly Jerusalem too. We're, we're like those people, but, in, but in, a, in an eternal kind of sense. We're busy waiting for the ultimate heavenly Jerusalem. But in the meantime, as they were waiting for the physical, actual Jerusalem, here we are, longing, waiting. The world is not our home. It's temporary. So if you're going to think through Christ and culture issues and how you're going to try to fit in, but you're not going to fit in, and you're going to feel struggle, and you're going to feel tension, and learn something from Israel. This is super helpful to us, I think. Israel was, when they were exiled, they were supposed to be faithful to their one God, Yahweh, right? Who was not like the gods of the nations, so they're to be faithful and committed, even if it meant um, taking it on the chin, Right? Well, there, there's something there for us to learn. We're to, be, we're to be committed to our one true God no matter what, not like the quote-unquote gods of the nations. And maybe that's going to mean uh, costliness to us. We can learn that from them. Absolutely, we can learn that from them. But something we overlook sometimes, and I want to bring to your attention right now, is that as Israel was exiled... They didn't just go hide under a rock. There are specific Old Testament examples that exiled Israel played a part in the world around them. Okay? They just weren't culture haters. Okay? And I realize this is, you know, we're deep into the pool thinking through big issues, but, but the beauty of it is we're trying to think through the big issues of Scripture so that we can think as Christians. Okay? We don't just have to have people telling us how to do things. We can think through with a Christian biblical paradigm, and and that's what I'm trying to do, so hang in there with me if you would. 
Can you think of an exile, a famous Old Testament character who was exiled, who needed to be faithful to his God during a time when he was not in Jerusalem and struggling around all kinds of people who opposed his God? Well, yeah, a lot of you are saying, yeah. Maybe you're thinking of the one I'm thinking of and his name is Daniel. Daniel would be a great example. Daniel was to unflinchingly be devoted to Yahweh, the one true and living God, the, 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 the God of covenant faithfulness. He was to be faithful to him because God was first faithful to Daniel. And we know that it worked pretty good. I mean, Dan- Daniel was committed. But did Daniel have anything to do with the culture around him? He sure did. He absolutely did. In fact, he played a, st- a strategic signif- significant role. He wasn't really, a, we can't describe him as a culture hater. He did his job. He did his job for Babylon. <laughs> Up until the point where he couldn't do it because it would cause him to compromise his, his, his devotion to God who was first devoted to him. But he didn't say, the, you know, this world is not my home and so I have nothing to do with anything around me. Actually, wasn't the case. It's also interesting that Daniel didn't try to turn Babylon into Jerusalem. That's important. That's important. But he did, I'm going to say this purposely this way, he did seek the general good of Babylon, which sounds pretty radical because we're talking about rejectors of the one true God, hostile to the one true God. One reason I know that, you read the narrative and I think you'll come to that same conclusion. But if you read Jeremiah, which is complementary to Daniel, in Jeremiah we learn that that is actually what you're supposed to do if you're an Israelite. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29 is an important passage when it comes to us thinking through this issue of Christ and culture, learning. The reason I go there, the reason I go to Jeremiah 29 is because first Peter, Peter invites us, I think, to do that. Because he invites us to open our Old Testaments and say, what's it look like to be a stranger and an alien? Because you're strangers and aliens. Well, he doesn't just say that in a vacuum, he, out of context. He says it in the context of Old Testament. So what did they look like when they were strangers and aliens? Well, Jeremiah, Daniel helps us tremendously. Um, Jeremiah helps us to know even how Daniel was thinking. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. We'll just look at one verse here. This is exile time. This is really, really helpful. Verse 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's kind of interesting about the sovereignty of God, but anyway, we're not going to get into that now. Um, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord, the, the one true God, on its, this is Babylonian culture, on its behalf. For in its welfare, Babylonian world, you will find your welfare. How about that? That's shocking, that's alarming, I think. But to the degree that you can, without compromising your right response To God, the Lord, you seek the welfare of the unbelieving pagan world where you're living. You can take that home with you. You can can apply that bigger than life in your paradigm uh, for thinking through Christ and culture. David Van Drunen, when he's here, I'm sure we'll talk about these kinds of issues because he does in his book called Living in God's Two Kingdoms. Okay? That is relevant, practical, helpful. Maybe you haven't bought my argument. I think that's where Peter's encouraging us to go. He's using Old Testament verbiage, Old Testament kind of explanation, and, and he's calling us to be similar to the Israelites. He's not saying we are the Israelites. I'm not saying that either. But there's something to be learned there because we're like them as strangers and aliens. So according to my perspective, I want to be devoted to my God, But as I live in this fallen, broken world that's oftentimes hostile to Him, I'm going to pray for its welfare. 
I'm going to pray that it would allow, uh, that, that there would be beneficial things that happen that are helpful providentially to the people of God and glorifying to God. And I want to glorify God in doing my place, whether I'm doing my part um, in my specific devotion to Him or doing my part in this world that He owns, even though it's broken. I want to do it to the glory of God. Let's move on now. Let's move on as we wait for that new Jerusalem. That's what we're, we're busy doing. Now let's move on to a second guiding principle for honoring Christ in your life. Number two, I'm putting all these kind of in, 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 in commands. So uh, I'm trying to tell you to do something. Uh, see that the church isn't Israel. Or excuse me, see that the church isn't national. See that the church isn't national. What's interesting is he just used nation to describe people who are part of the church. But surely in First Peter, he's not being literal. I know he's not being literal because when the church is spoken about, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the church is not spoken of literally as a nation. We even know, you know, even if you've read the Bible like once, you know that Jesus in the Great Commission calls what? Disciple making of all nations. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. If you want to write a passage down to go with the point, it'll be that passage for now. Okay, Great Commission. Jesus says all nations. He, he commissions the disciples who are going to commission more disciples, and that's where we are now. Go and make disciples of all nations. Complement that passage with uh, Galatians 3.28. Church is made up of all nations. And what he means is, whether they're Jew or Gentile, uh, all nations. Revelation chapter 5, the all nations kind of thing as well. The church is made up of all different kinds of people. Different races, different backgrounds, different languages, different uh, ethnos is the Greek word that's used. All different nations. I want to belabor that with you because sometimes our tendency is to think Israel was a nation and they're called to obey the Mosaic law. And that makes sense because all that national stuff about them as a nation, that makes sense for them to do that. And then we make a category error and we say, the church or our nation is a Christian nation. and Therefore, we need to be under that same Old Testament Mosaic law. Well, hold on. Can I be really bold and go out on a limb and say, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Now, I just offended half of you, so let me clarify. There, okay, there is such a thing as a Christian nation in that, that I'm okay with it if we're talking about this, in that there's a nation with lots of Christians in it. Or there's a nation that, that starts with, with a lot of people who are Christians who really want to have Judeo kind of Christian values. Um, okay, if you mean Christian nation by that, I'm, I'm fine with that. We don't have to debate. We don't have to get in a fist fight. Okay? You don't have to get up and leave. But specifically, biblical categories, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Because Christianity is what is making, is made up of all nations. The church has Jew and Gentile. There's, there's, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek in the church. It's multinational. It's multi-ethnic. It's diverse. That's the whole point. It's different. And so in that strict sense, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. I'm thankful for for countries where there are many Christians. I'm thankful for countries where there's a growing Christian population and there will be an effect. I'm absolutely thankful for the providence of God there. I would want you to be as well. But to suggest uh, and to, to, do the, to do the false transfer and say Old Testament Israel nation, United States of America nation, they're the same, so let's use their laws. You need to go back and read your Bible better. Wait a second here. It's all nations. Diversity. Different people. All different kinds of people. Even think about church laws. Are we going to take New Testament church laws and impose them on our nation? Now I think our nation, every nation, is under the law of God ultimately. Ultimately. Because everyone's responsible to God. 
Romans chapter 2 would talk about that. But to take the Mosaic nationalistic law and say our country must be under that, it couldn't even be done actually. Christians actually wouldn't want it to be done consistently. But let me just use one example to help you think about this. What did Jesus say about our enemies when they insult us? What should we do as Christians? Slug them back. Turn the other cheek, right? That's what he said. Writing to individual believers. What do you do when you're insulted? You turn the other cheek so they can insult you again. You don't retaliate. What would it be like if that's what we used for our police force as a motto? Turn the other cheek. Criminals would like it. If we're going to be consistent, though, and in one sense, we're going to say, well, we're going to instill Christian values, and we want it, we, that, that's the law that came from Jesus, if you will, and that's what we want here in our country. So criminals, we're going to turn the other cheek because that's Christian virtue, Christian morality. You don't want that. Maybe you do. I don't want that. I don't think that's what Jesus even meant. Now let's think it through a little bit differently. Romans chapter 13 says, The governing authorities, not individual Pat and Sally Christian, the governing authorities don't bear the sword for nothing. Okay? It's not just a decoration on the side of the building. The governing authorities, this is New Testament, bear the sword because they punish evildoers. I'm all for justice. You do something wrong, I think there should be a consequence. That's a Christian perspective on things, even of a Roman government, Romans chapter 13. Here's where I'm going. Don't check out, please. Think of the mess we would be in if we didn't try to have a consistent distinction there. By the way, it's been done before. Think about Constantine, 3rd century, Christian nation. It's also known as Christendom, where the church has the authority of the sword. And every one of us in this room, if we know anything about history, are or should be embarrassed by the things that have been done in the name of Christ under the sword. Awful things. The church shouldn't bear the sword, but if you have church and nation together, they should bear the sword. They should. But in actuality, they shouldn't. We have one individual ethic as Christians, which is a turn-the-other-cheek ethic, and yet, as a culture, as a society, there's a different ethic when it comes to the governing authorities, and actually, that'll help us to make sense of things and keep our sanity and not have the Bible just be a book of riddles. Remember that the church is not national. The way to become a Christian is not to be a a citizen of the United States of America. How often do we communicate that to other nations, though? The way to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus. Personally, individually, when you trust in Jesus, you will be, the Bible says, saved. That's a way to become a Christian. It's a different sort of thing. It's a different sort of thing, a different sort of category. Ready to move on? I usually don't think I have a hard job. I just, I love my job and I love to preach on Sundays. I feel like I have a hard job today. Um, I can just see the bullets flying. You guys are, you guys are after, no, you're not really. I really, really think this is going to take some time. Some of you are totally there and you're like, why are you belaboring this? If we can think through big picture passages even on a whole testament level and, and have a biblical paradigm. We can think for ourselves as Christians. Omaha Bible Church can be more effective. You can be uh, more effective as the salt and light that you are as a Christian. And we can help other people who, who need some help here. So good job hanging in there. I was just being silly before. Let's move on to another. A third guiding principle for honoring Christ in your life is own, that is believe, um, own this own that the church is gospel preaching own that the church is gospel preaching 
have the conviction that the church is calling in this world, in other words, is to proclaim Christ. And there's no and. We talk about this quite frequently. I'll talk about it just for a little bit more. I want you to own it. I want you to know it. I want you to be a good member of Omaha Bible Church so that we can believe this together, that we can affirm this, we can be as effective as we can. Our calling as a church is to be proclaimers of the gospel. So if people agree with our morality or they totally disagree with our morality, we actually have the same message. We actually have the same disposition toward them. No matter who it is, no matter what they look like, because the church is made up of all nations and it's made up of sinners who've been saved by God's grace, we have a one-string guitar, if you will, and it's a gospel note that we hit every time. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 are super helpful here. I want you to turn there if you would. You might have it memorized by now, so you don't need to. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where the Apostle Paul makes it clear that he's that kind of guy. His focus, and he's trying to set an example for the Corinthians, is a razor-sharp focus. And it's so easy for us as Christians, as it was for the Corinthians, to have mission drift. Okay? To, to drift away from what your mission is and, and to get distracted with something else. And, and here the Corinthians are struggling because they live in Corinth. But we all know that Corinth was a Christian. Corinth was a mess. And the church is a mess. It reflects the culture around them. It's got all kinds of issues, uh, whether it be uh, issues of morality or who knows what kind of political system was going on. It's, just, it's a disaster. And Paul stays on mission and he's letting the Corinthians know they need to stay on mission. And it's not about chasing all of the needs, although they might be relevant needs, they might be real needs. The church is called to be gospel heralds. Okay? Look what he says. It's so helpful. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided, not strong enough in the ESV, I determined, as some of your translations say, that is, I made my mind up ahead of time. I really like the synonym, for I resolved. Okay, because he knows there's going to be conflict. He knows there's going to be pushback, not just by the culture, but even by the church culture. For I resolved, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified which is one of the many ways he states the gospel, right? Sometimes he talks about resurrection, like in chapter 15. Sometimes he talks about Christ fulfilling the law, that kind of thing. But here, he's just summarizing the gospel. I resolve to know nothing among you except the gospel. Did they need help in their political system? Well, sure, it's a broken world. That's an easy assumption. Were there any other uh, kind of morality issues going on in the greater culture? Well, absolutely. Were, were there any other kind of needs that maybe people should have been trying to help with? Well, of course, you don't have to be super smart to figure that out. And Paul says, out of all of it, I resolved, knowing there would be conflict, so that's why you have to resolve yourself ahead of time. That's why you need to resolve yourself. We as a church need to resolve ourselves. We need to recommit our vows week in and week out to know nothing among the culture around us except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right? What, what is he getting at? He's getting at the historic work of Jesus. He's getting at the gospel like he does throughout the whole book, quite honestly, that Jesus, having lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God, voluntarily went to the cross and was crucified. He gave himself up for us, as he would say in Ephesians chapter 5. He gave himself up for us. He was crucified as a substitute to provide atonement. And through atonement, you have forgiveness. And then to be raised from the dead, providing new life, providing justification, as he also unpacks in this letter. And, and, and that's what the gospel is. And, and it's the power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1. Uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And, and this is the message that we give to fornicators. This is the message we give to homosexuals. This is the message we give to thieves. This is the message we give to idolatrous people. This is the message we give to liars. This is the message we give to everybody. But it is our message. And I feel like I'm preaching. Because I am. Guess what our calling is as a church? If Paul is being, example, being an example here, and I have no doubt that he is, our calling when it comes to engaging the world around us as a church is to preach Christ. 
There's hope in Him. There's forgiveness in Him. There's peace in Him. There's reconciliation in Him. There's right standing before God in Him. It's what matters. Are there other good things to be done in the world around us? Yes, I think there are. Is Omaha Bible Church called to do those things? My answer is, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now we're going to get to individuals in a little while. And to see that you as an individual, as a citizen of this world, might just be morally obligated to help with other things. Just by way of preview. But as a church, we're called to be lean and nice. <laughs> okay? Not lean and mean, but because we have good news for people. Not bad news. That doesn't mean we can't, we don't preach the law of God because we actually have to. We actually have to have a context for the gospel because the gospel doesn't make sense if you don't understand sin and guilt. And so we do have to say God calls everyone everywhere to love Him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. That's just the, the, the abbreviated version. We can start unpacking that and talk about individual different kinds of sin. We have to be able to let people know that they're guilty before God. Absolutely. We're going to say what's right and what's wrong. But not so we can stop there. That's right. This is wrong. In other words, we're right. Everyone else is wrong. That's just self-righteousness. What we're going to do is say, that's right. What you, excuse me, that's wrong. What you do is wrong. What I do is wrong. What Christ did was right. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be restored. You'll be reconciled. You'll be saved, as it says in chapter 16 of Acts. That's what we do. By the way, you want to stay relevant to the culture long term? That's what we'll do. But we've got all of these voices saying, if you want to be relevant, you've got to do this. If you want to be making a big impact in your culture, if you really love people, you're going to do this. And, and what about this? And what kind of church are you? Aren't you going to do this? This week we got a solicitation somebody sent me. I saw somebody was encouraging us because uh, somebody wanted us to join them in picketing. They wanted us uh, as a church, Omaha Bible Church, to go and picket a meeting of atheists. And, and because it's, this is our good Midwestern Christian values kind of city, Omaha. So let's go picket the atheists because they shouldn't be meeting here. Why would I go picket the atheists? Why would Omaha Bible Church go pick at the atheists? I wouldn't do it individually either. Why would Omaha Bible Church do that? It's outside of our purview. What I have to say to an atheist is the same thing I have to say to somebody who goes to church five days a week. If they don't know Christ... I have good news for them. I have good news for them. I'm no better than they are apart from Christ. So we're constantly saying no to goofy things <laughs> and even to some other good things. Even to some other good things. You can read 1 Corinthians 1, all of it, just to kind of get a flavor for what Paul's really getting at. I didn't take the time to develop that. Maybe just one more thing about this and, and we'll move on. And that would be, think about how, how lean the description of the church and what the church is supposed to be and do is if you read your Bible. It's pretty lean. It's pretty lean. There's all kinds of one another things that go on in the body, absolutely. But when it comes to our mission, it's pretty lean. Yeah, even in history, for example, I'll choose the Protestant Reformation because it was a time not when Christianity began, but it was a time when we, we had to step back and rethink. What really are we? What do we do? What are we really all about? And, and essentially, the conclusion was the church does two things the right preaching of the Word of God, specifically that would have Christ as the hero, 
We, we preach Christ appropriately in light of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So the proclamation of the gospel, we could say. And number two, the right, I'm using the formal language, the, the right administration of the sacraments. In other words, baptism and the Lord's Supper, explaining their true meaning, that they don't make you Christians. In, in light of, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. And that was it. Think of all the different kind of programs we want to do. We're a one-stop shop, you know. We do anything and everything. Anything somebody wants us to do, we're going to do. Let's take on that. Let's take on that. There's this social cause. There's that social cause. There's this moral issue. There's that moral issue. There's this good idea. There's this helpful thing. We get solicitations for healthcare kinds of things and healthcare drives and all kinds of things that are good things. What's the church's calling? To preach Christ? The right preaching of the Word of God and ministration of the sacraments. Oh, by the way, those sacraments, what do they picture? The gospel. Baptism pictures the gospel, right? The Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate today, is a, is a, is a dramatic representation, because there are elements at least, of the gospel. That Jesus gave Himself, that He, that he shed His blood. And, and guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to talk about Christ and His greatness. And guess what we're going to do the next week? We're going to talk about Christ and His greatness. And guess what we're going to say to unbelievers? We're going to talk about Christ and His greatness. Guess what we're going to say to other unbelievers who are from a different subculture? Hmm, talk about Christ and His greatness and talk about hope in Him and forgiveness in Him and reconciliation in Him and it seems like that's all you guys do. Uh-huh. That's it, exactly right. Thank you for asking us to do something else good. We'll have to pass as a church because that's not what we're called to do. Mission drift is so easy. So easy for us. We're apolitical. We're not involved in politics. We're never, we've never been called to be political. Doesn't mean we can't say something's, a politician is wrong because we preach the law to everybody so that people can have a context for the gospel. We can say a policy is wrong if it's, a violation of God's law. It provides a context to understand the gospel. But we better also acknowledge that we're wrong. Because we're lawbreakers too. We have a message of hope for people. And you say, if you really cared, you'd do something beyond that. That's a, that's a pushback. Well, if we really cared most of all about Jesus, we'll do what He says. And we're talking about eternal ramifications. And you look at history and churches where they thought they better get more relevant and they better say gospel and. And it doesn't take very long before it's social gospel, which is not a gospel. And now the gospel is redefined as something else. Specifically in the Bible, it's the good news about the work of Jesus. We trust in Him, right? So important and so significant for us. Let's move on to one more. One more guiding principle. Know that Christians have dual citizenship. Know that Christians have dual citizenship. And just because I'm afraid I'm going to forget because my mind is racing about all these things, let me just get to the punchline a little bit now uh, in case I forget. If this is true, we have dual citizenship, citizenship in heaven and citizenship that's temporary here. That then opens the door for you and for me to do good things for our neighbor because we're called to love them that can look a bit different than what the church is called to do. If you're truly a citizen of this earth, of this temporary fleeting place, now all of a sudden we can even understand better how I'm a church member and my church does this very specific thing, but I'm also an image bearer. I bear the image of God and I'm called to love my neighbor. Oh, and as a stranger and an alien, I got that hint from First Peter to learn something from Old Testament Israel. Oh, and I learned there that Jeremiah says, seek the good and welfare of Babylon. Not because Jeremiah thought Babylon was going to last forever. 
But it's where he was in the time being. It's where he was in the time being. And so just to spell it out for you, I believe strongly that Omaha Bible Church does one thing and one thing only in an ultimate sense. But Pat Abendroth, a member of the human race, a fellow image bearer with you image bearers and other image bearers and other image bearers who might even be hostile to the gospel, need to love them and do good toward them and help them. See where it gets complicated is how we pray about how we do this. Sometimes a fundamentalist is going to say, okay, I'm kind of with you, but you know what? Which is going to last forever? Well, only the lasting Jerusalem. So why in the world would I invest any time here? I guess because Jeremiah says, (laughs) in light of 1 Peter, in light of Jesus saying, the greatest commandment is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, absolutely. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbors, anybody who's a fellow, fellow image bearer made in the image of God. And, and by way of application ahead of time, again, this is probably where lots of us, um, this is a huge assumption, not all of you, this doesn't apply to everybody, but lots of us coming from a bunker down mentality don't have a burden here to say, I'm faithful to my church. I'm faithful to serving the one true and living God. I'm faithful to be a gospel proclaimer. I want to be about that. I want to support that. I want to be all about that. But it's really hard for me to see any value of functioning and loving my neighbor outside of that. Some of us really struggle with that. And I'm saying I think this will help you with a better, more biblical paradigm to say, you know what? You can do these things and they're not all of zero value. You honor Christ in those things too. I gave away the application. But don't take my word for it that we have dual citizenship. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us we're citizens of heaven. Okay, so start with point A, if you will. We're citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. But then we're also going to see we're, we're, we're citizens of this temporary fleeting world. So Philippians 3.20, Paul says very explicitly, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's never shy away from knowing that, owning that. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens. And life is hard and life is difficult. And so we're waiting for that great time when we enter into the fullness of that. And and we see Jesus and we're made like Him. I'm thinking about Romans chapter 8. And it all becomes reality. Yes! So we've marched to the beat of a different drummer. And and, and if you will, many have observed historically that, you know, the the church is the foretaste of that. You know, this this is not heaven, we know. (laughs) But when the church gathers together, you know, we're we're the the heavenly community, if you will, uh, and getting that preview together when the body of Christ is functioning right and and, and this is representative of, of what's to come. But the other reality is you're a citizen of this temporary earthly kingdom, if you will. And so you have obligations. Some there related, some here related. Exactly how you balance that, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I'm glad it doesn't say, because if it said, then I wouldn't pray about it. Neither would you. Practical, Lord, how do I use myself? How do I live my life? How do I divide up my time? That's an important issue, and it causes you to think and wait upon the Lord. Significant. The Apostle Paul knew that he also had temporary citizenship here. We're not going to take the time to go there, but in the book of Acts, when he's, when he's um, uh, on trial, he demands justice. I want a fair trial. I'm paraphrasing all of this. I demand that you treat me fairly. I want a fair trial. I'm a Roman citizen. Ah. He's underscoring his temporary citizenship in the here and now earthly realm, saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve a fair trial as a Roman citizen. It's very interesting, and we're not going to unpack the details of this. Maybe David Van Drunen will. Notice he doesn't say, I'm an apostle. Let me go. 
he's maintaining, it shows he's not Constantinian. Church nation. Or he would have just said, I'm an apostle, let me go, punk. (laughs) Or off with your head. Church bears the sword. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. I think Jesus also acknowledges the the temporariness of this, this earthly realm. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 20, you can. Luke 20, 24. Otherwise, I'll read it and you can just follow along. By the way, as you're turning there, Jesus is sovereign over everything. I mean, he, he's in charge of the whole thing. Uh, we learn about this in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He's the only sovereign. He's the ultimate sovereign. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. God is over the earthly rulers. But there's a sense in which there's a temporary... Um, citizenship, a domain that's here that's, that's different. Luke chapter 20, verse 24, Jesus says, show me a denarius. Somebody give me a coin. Okay? That's what he, he says. Somebody give me a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That is more profound than you probably even realize. And you can go to the Middle East today, you can, you can go to, to Caesarea by the sea, and you can see an actual altar for Caesar worship where they were to offer animal sacrifices because they worshiped Caesar in the first century. And so they're trying to catch Jesus here. The Jews hated this, and rightfully so they hated this. Every time they had to buy something with Roman currency, they, they, their conscience was pricked that they're practicing idolatry because there's a graven image on the coin. This would be awful. And so they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus and trying to sort out his theology as they tried to do it so many turns. And he says, give me the coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. If we all know that, duh. We hate that Caesar's name and his face is on it. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Therefore, among other things, acknowledging a legitimate place for an earthly ruler. As corrupt as it was, as, as upside down as it was, Jesus acknowledged the legitimacy of a temporary sovereign, of a temporary king. Jesus believes, well, he, he knows Daniel chapter 2, he knows everything is God's. But here he says, give to God's what is God's and give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Well, it's all God's because God is above Caesar because he put him in place. But in a temporary sense, here's what we have to conclude. In a temporary sense, there is this, this kingdom. It's of the here and now. And there's the ultimate, eternal, heavenly kingdom. Yes, God is over both. Therefore, you can honor God in both by giving to Caesar what is Caesar's in the here and now. You're honoring God, right? You're honoring, honoring Caesar and you're honoring God because God says to do that. Romans 13. You've got dual citizenship. You've got dual responsibilities. So what do you do? You try to do your very best in the temporal, here and now, earthly domain that ultimately God is over, so that in doing the temporary, earthly obedience in the here and now, and loving your neighbor as yourself, you're honoring God. But you're also a part of the church, if you will. You're part of the church community, heavenly citizenship, foretaste, and so you're going to honor God in that too, that's more explicitly um, uh, god uh, spelled out as God-honoring, but both are. Because you're a dual citizenship. And I think complementing this would be our Jeremiah 29, 7 passage. As well as others. Well, maybe one other Old Testament example I didn't use earlier. Abraham, in the Old Testament, not in the promised land, did this kind of stuff. Genesis 12 to 25, he engaged in cultural activities with his neighbors. Commerce. Genesis 23. Morality is an issue even discussed among unbelievers in Genesis chapter 20. Political alliance, Genesis 21. It's very interesting. supposed to be faithful to the one true and living God who made promises to him. We know that he actually failed at times. But he also did these other things that had him engaged in culture. Dual citizenship, if you will. 
I so badly want you to, to pray about how you can be faithful as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom and how you can be faithful as a citizen of the here and now kingdom, if you will. Because you can be faithful in both by God's grace and in being faithful in both, you give honor to the one true God who is over both, who's over all. And one day, there won't be the temporary small s sovereigns, Caesars, because Jesus will come back and rule and reign explicitly only in that one way. But we're waiting for that. We're waiting for that. And you, have, you see a need and you say, well, I can't help with that need because I'm a Christian. How about this? Omaha Bible Church might not help with that need as odd as that might sound. We may. But Omaha Bible Church trying to stay on mission is not going to try to do every good thing in the world because we can't. But you as an individual made in the image of God dealing with other people made in the image of God called to love your neighbor as yourself may help with that need and honor Christ by helping with that need. And let me turn it just a little bit more. It may be not only that you might help, it may be that you're morally obligated to help. Because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I hope and pray you do things that are good for the culture around you, good for Babylon. That you remember that it's Babylon and we're not trying to turn Babylon into Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to be rocking. But we're going to wait for the new Jerusalem. The things we'll talk about in the days ahead next week. Number five, value the work of fellow image bearers. In other words, value the work of unbelievers. And we're going to talk about how we can do that. doesn't mean we invite them in to do church conferences. But they're made in the image of God and we can value that even if they're dishonoring to God, we can value for the way God uses them to do the good things that they do. Good, not in a capital G moral sense. Just wait till next week. Don't make me obligated to unpack all that. Sixth guiding principle. Question trends like redeeming culture. I want you to question trends like the trend of we're redeeming culture. I want you to find that in the Bible. And the seventh guiding principle we'll talk about next time that is so important in this discussion of Christ and culture. Don't forget the second coming. I got to tell you that, and I used to at least have to tell you, so many times when we're, we're going to redeem culture, we're going to transform culture, and we've got to do social activism and do all of these things as the church, I don't mean as individual. We have to remember, not only is that not what we're called to do as the church, we have to remember that cultural transformation that will actually last is after an earthly destruction and recreation that is tied to the return of Jesus. So why would we want to compete with Him doing what He and He alone can do? doesn't even make any sense. We need a good, and I like David Van Drew, and he'll emphasize this. We need a good, robust commitment to everything being solved one day. Absolutely. Cultural transformation par excellence that Jesus and Jesus alone will do. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for that. Father, thank you so much for the saints at Omaha Bible Church and for the, the common desire we all have, coming from different places, different understandings, the common desire that we all have to honor Jesus. And so I pray for the men and women and boys and girls who are gathered here, that, that this would 
at least spark our interest. It would at least move us off center to get us thinking about these issues so that we would have a great time at a great conference. And more importantly than that, that that we would move from where we are now in our understanding of what the church is about, what individuals are about, what the culture is about, that we would move from where we are now to a place of greater maturity and that we would find ourselves more motivated than we are now to honor Jesus in everything that we do. As we're able now to eat and drink, remembering what Christ has done, allow us to enjoy the great reality of salvation in Christ and the assurance that comes from what he's done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.